Welcome to the Momversations Project, brought to you by the National Women's Theater Festival, Momversations, mothers reclaiming tough conversations about the messy and the beautiful realities of their lives. I'm your host, Molly Clausen. In this episode, we discuss breastfeeding and lactation care for new moms and the challenges, hardships, exhaustion, the power, beauty, and magic that goes with it. Because breastfeeding and chest feeding came up in almost all of the conversations we've had, and each discussing the difficulties and lack of knowledge and support from our community and medical practitioners, today's episode will be a collection of stories. We'll hear from three moms and two experts in the field. Our experts are Katie DeMarco Ruck, an international board-certified lactation consultant, and April Castillo, who you may recognize from Episode 5, who is a doctor specializing in breastfeeding as preventative medicine. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast directly, you can now go to our Anchor FM page, that's anchor.fm slash momversation, and click the support button or follow the link in the show notes. We hope you enjoy listening. I love you, Mommy. Mama, Mama, Mama. The Momversations Project. Guess what? What? I farted. First, we have Christina Ball Owens, our guest from Episode 3, and Johanna share their experiences with breastfeeding in those first few weeks as a new mom. Whatever you're feeling in those first weeks is okay. And I was terrified that she would not wake up. I was terrified that like the sleeping arrangement was not right. I was feeling like, am I using too many chemicals? Am I not using enough coconut oil? Am I infusing social justice in my decisions? Also, like, is the baby breathing? Am I not trying to breastfeed hard enough? Am I giving up by pumping? Like, I I really think the first six weeks for sure was like just a blur. I mean, when I think about the beginning parts of motherhood, it really is like a giant wave crashing down. And like, great things about that. Like the ocean is beautiful and also it's terrifying and sort of painful and overwhelming. Completely overwhelming. So much of what you said is also what I experienced. The doctors was like, we'll, we'll worry about it if it comes. And I needed to have the action plan and I didn't have it. And I felt so unprepared for action and just, yeah, those waves crashing, like you said. Yeah. Katie Mohammedian, our guest from episode two, discusses her breastfeeding journey and pumping for her baby in the NICU. Yeah, I mean, you know, not that you'd want to like freak anybody about, out about all the things that could go wrong, but it's also like the positive stuff like breastfeeding. And, you know, that's it's a hard journey, especially early on, and, and it, it only gets better with support. So, Right. Were you able to really establish the breastfeeding with Emmy then? I know you started in the pumping and all of that stuff. So I pumped for her for nine months and I breastfed probably only about two months with her home. And I had to do like a mix of breast and bottle it just because she just, she had a really hard time taking enough volume to grow. Mm. And so it's a harder skill to breastfeed than it is to bottle. So yeah. we switched to all bottle. So that journey ended early for me. I wish I would have uh, sought out more support for that. But uh, for my second, for Milo, my son. It's been going fine. So I've been breastfeeding for five and a half months. I'm now pumping at work, which is a joy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, and while kids are like at recess and things like that, I'm like hooking up and, you know, but you know what? I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to do it because it was a dream of mine to be able to do it. It's a hard journey, but it's still, there's a lot of privilege in there to have a job that is really supportive of it, to have, mm you know, women in my life who are supportive of it, to have the resources to, you know, get bags to store it in and uh, mm -hmm. to have a pump, to have the insurance that bought me the pump, you know, I mean, all that stuff. It's, um, there's a lot of inequalities when it comes to breastfeeding. There are a lot of inequalities when it comes to children and childbirth and mothering and all that, but. Absolutely. Yeah. And now my friend Lauren Morris shares her story of discovering she had help syndrome and how that affected her ability to breastfeed her premature baby. With hindsight, I can look back and realize 
that the challenges there for me were as a sort of a high achiever, perfectionist kind of person, having hopes and expectations that I would also be able to do that with a pregnancy and with motherhood, which is <laughs> hilarious <laughs> now. Um, and I think that happens to a lot of people. Like, I think that's not new, right? So I got pregnant really easily, which was a surprise because I was 35. I didn't expect to get pregnant so quickly or so easily. It's a real screwed up thing to try not to get pregnant your whole life. And then suddenly to try hard to get pregnant. Uh, first of all, that's just weird. And then, <laughs> and then it actually worked. But the beginning of my pregnancy was really strange. I actually had an OB tell me that it wasn't viable and sort of gave me the choice to end the pregnancy with like medicine or just wait and let it happen naturally. And I waited and it turned out the pregnancy was viable and is my son. So that was a pretty fucked up experience to start out with. I switched OBs pretty quickly after that. Uh, like that's so surprising that they... There was no heartbeat that they could detect. And so they just thought it was a... Yeah. And my, my hormones were really strange. Like, I don't remember exactly. It's just that my levels were really high. So HCG, is it? Like, that they, they test you for when you're pregnant. And my levels were, like, crazy high when they took that test um, at just my GP's office. And they were like, you could be having twins. Like, we don't know what this is. You're definitely pregnant. It might be twins. The reason I had gone to see doctors, I had some spotting. And I was like, oh, I don't, this is not great. And of course, when you first call and say you're pregnant, you have some spotting, they're like, yeah, yeah, calm down, lady. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a lot of calm down ladies in this whole story, which is, I still have a lot of rage around that. So like I would say, I've worked through a lot of the trauma and like the, we almost died parts of the story, but I, I'm still angry in ways that like I can barely talk about. So I had the spotting. Eventually they were like, okay, so you should come in, you should get this ultrasound. And it was that ultrasound that they were like, yeah, we don't think this is viable. Do you want to end it now so that you can like, your body can heal and then you can try to get pregnant again. You just want to let it happen naturally. I let it happen naturally. Pregnancy was viable. Switched OBs. And then my pregnancy was kind of normal. Like I wasn't super sick. I wasn't, I was a little, you know, I had morning sickness, but like not, I didn't barf. It was just queasy. Ate a lot of saltines. <laughs> so then in January, I had more spotting. I had a different OB this time. And I called her and she said, you know, just come in. It was a Saturday morning. Just come in and, and have it looked at. Like, we'll just monitor you, see what's happening. So she did that. And I don't remember exactly, I would have to look back at the records, exactly what it was that tipped her off. But she's like, we're going to monitor you. I think it was that my um, cervix, she said, you have a dynamic cervix. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> so we're going to monitor you overnight. So they did that. They started bringing me pamphlets about bed rest, about premature birth. I was at 27 and a half weeks at this point of my pregnancy. And they kept me, they monitored me. I was pissed. I was like, listen, I do not want to do bed rest. I was such a, like, now I think about that and I'm like, you don't know shit lady. And then they were going to release me on Monday and I started getting sick. Like I started getting a really bad headache. I started having pain in my side. And I just got sicker and sicker and sicker. They did another ultrasound. The baby was okay. They were going to send me home on bed rest, basically. And there was a shift. My OB switched, you know, like went home. Her shift was over. The, a new OB in the practice came in and was supposed to come in and examine me, but didn't. Essentially, as the day progressed, I started getting sicker and sicker. I stopped passing urine. I started vomiting. And they were like, oh, you probably have the flu. So then they were like staying away from me. And then they were like, you're just going to go home and convalesce from the flu. 
But as the day wore on, I got significantly sicker and it was a head nurse that put the symptoms together that potentially I had a thing called help syndrome. She remembered it from her nursing textbook. I only knew all of this days afterward when she came in and talked to me, but that lady saved my life because the OB was dismissing all of these symptoms because she had an event to go to. She had left the hospital, had signed my release papers without actually examining me. And the nurse was calling her to come back to the hospital. That OB called my OB and said, tell me about this Lauren Morris girl. Is she squirrely? Like, is, is she just making this up? And it was like, nope, nope. If she says it's happening, it's probably happening. Which why should anybody ever have to say that? But so doc came back to the hospital. Then they started taking my blood and checking platelets. And it turns out that I, long story short, after a CT scan, uh, all these tests, and they were taking my blood every 20 minutes, I had this thing called HELP syndrome. Uh, once they had determined that, they rushed me into surgery because as part of the deal, your body stops making platelets. And so surgery becomes really dangerous but they rushed me in for the C-section. And that was like four in the morning on Tuesday by that time. It was basically like a three-day journey into figuring out what was wrong with me. But it's rare enough that it makes sense they didn't, it's like one half of 1% of pregnancies have this complication. They did the emergency C-section. Callan was 28 weeks. He went into the NICU and he was there for seven and a half weeks. But he did great. Like we were really lucky, but he did so well. And then from that point forward, it was all of the things, the trauma about being a NICU parent. You know, I didn't get to hold Kellen until he was two weeks old. It's just a moment by moment thing of like, is it going to be okay? They're pretty blatant about saying like, that baby might die and we're going to do everything we can, but you just need to know that that's, this is, this is a long road. They bring in social workers right away to be like, your kid probably will have some mental deficiencies or could have uh, physical handicaps due to the oxygen, due to the this, that, the other. You know, so you're like being bombarded with that at first. So there's all that NICU parent thing. And then one of the most difficult things for me was breastfeeding because my body, I was not far from death when they took that baby and they were not certain that I would survive. And I was in the hospital for another week after he was born. My body was not in the greatest shape to be feeding somebody else. I mean, I was watching other NICU moms do it, but maybe they hadn't been through what I had been through. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure if that's why I couldn't produce milk, but for whatever reason, it was just really, not working. And, you know, they've got the lactation consultants coming every few hours. And if your baby's in the NICU, you have to, you have to pump babies, babies born that early can't eat. They can't actually, we can't feed until 36 weeks in the pregnancy. So you got a ways to go before that is even possible. So you've got a pump and I just wasn't producing enough milk. And the most humiliating part of it is that I actually got this policy changed at the hospital and I was sort of proud of that. You have to go into the NICU and put up the containers with your milk in them on the counter. Like they have your label on them. So you're pumping into these like little tiny containers that then they put nipples on and feed the baby with, or in Kellen's case, you know, it was tube fed, but you have to put them on the counter and then ev everybody can see like your tiny bit of milk. Mine looked terrible. Like it was like thin and gray and like, it looked terrible. In fact, the first couple of things I produced, they were like, I don't think we should actually give this to the baby. This looks wrong. And I was like, cool. Well, it came out of my boobs. So I'm sorry. It's not up to your standards. Like, what do you want me to do about that? I'd have these two tiny little tubes with like this much in it. And then there'd be like 14 containers of this rich, beautiful yellow milk 
next to mine of this other mom who just came in and dropped hers off. And it was like, it sounds so shallow, but like not being able to do that well and not being able to do anything about it. Like I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't learn how to do it better or like try harder or like the harder I tried, the more I learned, the more I studied, the more I tried, the more techniques I learned, the more, the tighter I held it, the worse it got. I mean, I breastfed that kid for a year pumping. He would eventually, he latched a little bit, but he was never really that interested in it. And I like dug my heels in and did it for a year, but it sucked. Pumping is terrible under the best of circumstances. That I would say is still a thing that is just like so painful, but it used to really make me panic. And then it took me a long time to really even understand what had happened to me and what that the, these reactions I was having and these feelings I was having once I got a great therapist who so good, she was like, this is PTSD. This is, you don't necessarily have postpartum depression. You have PTSD. This is the definition of trauma. This is what happens to your body. And in some ways I felt like a weight off my shoulders, like, oh, I'm not broken. I'm not a failure. I have a thing that is reasonable, <laughs> like has a name. And that was helpful to be able to name it. And now Kellen is six. He won't shut up. <laughs> That's my biggest problem in the world is that I cannot make him stop talking for three seconds. And I'm really grateful for that. And it makes me want to drink. <laughs> Both of those things are true. <laughs> Simultaneously. In so many of the conversations we've had, it has become abundantly clear that women are not getting enough lactation support. So we turn to two women healthcare practitioners who are working to change that. Well, hello there, Kate DeMarco Ruck. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. So Kate is a BA, IBCLC, CBS. Um, international board certified lactation consultant and certified breastfeeding specialist providing private practice breast chest body feeding support to families in the New York City metro area. Kate is a compassionate and knowledgeable IBCLC trained in the oral habilitation of the breastfeeding dyad and rhythmic movement and reflexes in the infant. Kate has volunteered internationally with refugee communities through Carry the Future, providing necessary breastfeeding support and aid during the budgeting Syrian refugee crisis in Athens, Greece in 2016. She's an active participant in local, national, and international lactation community. Kate is a 2020 speaker at LC in PP workshops. I said that right? Okay. Yeah, a guest speaker for lactation learning collection and an instructor for the lactation private practices essential course. Kate currently serves as the board of New York Lactation Consultants Association as Education Events Director and Social Media Marketing Outreach Director. Kate enjoys collaborating with her colleagues through brainstorming on client situations, speaking together at conferences, and organizing events for professional development. Kate is continually attending professional conferences and trainings to keep up with the evolving field of human lactation in order to provide the best possible care for her clients. Kate is founder of The Parenting Studio, a community space in Brooklyn, New York. Kate holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in theater from Balmwalls University, and Kate has visited all seven continents on earth, but calls Brooklyn, New York home with her husband, Ken, her two formerly breastfed children, Orion, 13, Josie, 10, and her dogs, <laughs> two dogs, Boomer and Tracker. <laughs> Welcome, Kate. <laughs> did I get all that right? I think you got it really, really great. You did great. Okay. I'm sure you've worked with many families, not even in your, you know, in your private practice, but also in these classes and all the educational things that you've been doing. So what do you see and, and what have you learned from the families that you work with? And also, what do you think the parents that you work with need the most? What are you seeing out there? I think parents really need good, solid information. And I think, especially when it comes to feeding, they're hearing a lot of voices 
coming at them from different directions. And, you know, you're, you're getting what maybe you learned in your breastfeeding class before you gave birth. Then you're, you're getting the information from the five different nurses you worked with in the hospital, right? If you were lucky enough to see a hospital lactation consultant, which they are so overworked and, you know, maybe get 15, 20 minutes with each baby, you know, you're remembering what they told you. Then there's what your mom is telling you and what your mother-in-law is telling you and what your husband is telling you and, you know, what your best friend is relating about her experience and your neighbor across the hall. So it's all this information. And then that doesn't even think about like what you're reading on the internet and on social media, you know, groups and all of this stuff. It's so much information. Oh, and then there's what your pediatrician told you which, um, you know, I wish, I wish that, you know, pediatricians, you know, had to take classes in infant feeding, you know, because just that, you know, you want to trust what your pediatrician is telling you. So ultimately you're probably going to do what they said. And then they come to me and, and then I have to undo a lot of that. Or I have to like validate the thoughts that the parent actually has themselves because they're guided by their instincts and by what their baby is communicating to them. And, you know, whereas someone's telling them that what they're doing is wrong, whereas I'm like, this is amazing that you figured this out so early on in the game. Keep doing this because this is helping your baby. And and so a lot of it is just giving them lots of evidence-based information and trying to like help them figure out what their baby needs and what, what would be helpful for their specific baby. And then also just validating that they're the expert in their baby. Yes, I'll spend two hours, two and a half hours with you and watch several feeds and we'll weigh your baby and we'll take this data and we'll, you know, I'll do assessments and look at all of this stuff and make suggestions based on my experience and, you know, my clinical knowledge. But ultimately, like, you're the expert on your baby. So you're, you're in charge of, of what's happening. And here, here's what I recommend, like, try this positioning. And this is on my care plan, or whatever works for you. So if like, we get this great latch in this one position during our visit, and then you go home, and you just can't recreate it, then that's fine. Don't get stuck on that find something else that works for you. But here's, you know, and here's a couple other choices to try when you're at home. And and then this is how you can support your milk supply and keep that growing. And this is how you can feed your baby with a bottle in a way that's more supportive of feeding them with your body. So if you want to be able to transition back and forth, and then these are things that might, you know, get in your way and cause a, a roadblock to, to where you want to go. So let's try and avoid this and figure something else out. And then mm-hmm. a lot, I feel like a lot of what I do is coordinate resources and coordinate community. So I, I give my clients, you know, referrals to, you know, if they're, if we suspect that maybe their baby has a tongue tie, you know, I'll, I'll refer them to someone who's able to actually make that diagnosis and then give them treatment options and a plan for after that treatment to like get to the next step. And then like every baby I know needs body work and needs like they've been shoved in this uterus and can't move for, you know, weeks, if not months on end. And they're stiff and they need to unwind after being born. And, you know, maybe something funky happened during the birth, their neck's a little twisted. So I refer them to like really great body workers that I know in the community, you know, and then especially now in the pandemic, so many parents I'm seeing are, are really struggling with like perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, whether it's depression or postpartum anxiety I do assessments and then we'll refer to mental health practitioners who can help them to postpartum doulas, to La Leche League meetings. You know, a lot of the parents, because they've been isolated and are still isolated now, I'm like, you really need to see like another baby. You need to see what another baby acts like to know that what your baby is doing is really kind of like typical baby stuff. And, and that you shouldn't feel insecure that your baby is doing all this stuff that babies do normally. And so why don't you go to a La Leche League meeting and talk to those parents? And, you know, a lot of it is online now still. And so it's, you know, I try to help my clients create a community too, because it's a lot. You can't just do it all by yourself. 
I tried. <laughs> you can't. Oh, yeah. So tell me though, because you you know, with doing lactation consulting and 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 I know that you're active too in supporting mothers, and how does that fit into like socially and politically in the climate that we live in? You know, health and feminism and, and you know, empowering other parents and you know, babies and all and, and politics and all of these you know, all of these things that are important to me, I feel like all come together with, you know, breastfeeding, human lactation, because anyone who gives birth, you know, should have the right to feed their baby their milk. Uh, you know, you can you can get into all of these intersectional parts of how you feed your baby, which I think is really fascinating. If someone sees me, they're most likely going to pay out of pocket, and then I give them a super bill, and then they have to submit to, to be reimbursed. But anyway, going back to, to laws. Oh, and the ACA also said that a parent, a lactating parent has the right to have pump breaks once they go back to work throughout the day. Then they are in the process of passing the Pump Act, which helps clear up some loopholes in the ACA as far as pumping so that teachers and people who work in healthcare, you know, and other and then other settings where they weren't, didn't have those protections, they now will have those protections. So, you know, it, slowly but surely, we're realizing that more and more parents want to feed their babies this way, and that we need to support that. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on in my profession. You know, my profession lactation consultants tend to be middle aged middle-class white ladies, right? And it's a lot of us and we have great intentions, but it doesn't represent everyone who's giving birth right now. And so it's a it's a big challenge to how do we support families from all communities and, you know, people from different communities deserve to have a care provider who looks like them, who knows their life experience. And I understand that me as, you know, a middle-aged white lady, I don't, I don't know everything and I'm probably not the best provider for every single person out there. So I want to help people find a provider that they're really comfortable with. And I also like one of my goals professionally and personally is to help break down these barriers towards becoming a lactation consultant for members of oppressed communities, for, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, which, you know, are, are hugely underrepresented as lactation professionals. And these, you know, families in these communities need all the support that they can get because we, we want, you know, every baby to receive their parents' milk if that's, you know, what the family wants. And so, you know, trying to figure out how can we support new lactation consultants who are representing these like traditionally oppressed communities and how can we make education more um, accessible how can we uh, make clinical hours more accessible? All of those things support people with, you know, testing fees and and all of this stuff. And then once they do become a lactation consultant, you know, I'm like trying to help and identify ways to, you know, for people to to set up a, a business, to set up a private practice. So that's like part of like one of my personal like far-reaching goals, but. Um, it's something I think about a lot and I have a lot of like-minded colleagues and we have a great online professional community and, and it, it, everything we're experiencing in society, you know, is reflected in people who are, you know, having families and needing to feed their babies, right? All of the, these equity issues with equity mm -hmm. issues with um, racism and healthcare and, and how that kills it kills babies and it kills parents. And we, we see it every year in New York City. Um, and we see it with these horrific infant and maternal, you know, rates of, of illness and, and death because there's, you know, ex implicit and explicit bias in healthcare. So all of these things that we see in society, we see as a microcosm in in the families that we work with and the colleagues that we want to support. So thinking about things politically and, and 
in line with like human rights and basic human rights. And, and one of those rights in my belief is to, to give birth if you want to give birth, no matter how you identify as a person and to feed your baby, your milk, if that's what you want to do, or to access donor milk, if you can't provide your own milk, but you, it's important to you that your baby has human milk. So, you know, and that could be hugely political. It shouldn't be. It, it should be a basic human right and be supported with those goals. Hi, Momversations listeners. We believe that mom's voices are powerful and need to be heard. As moms, we also know that so much of what we go through is veiled in secrecy in our society. As a result, too many women suffer in silence. And that's just with the all-too-common issues like miscarriage, infertility, lactation, depression, and anxiety. We also know that many moms in our very own country are dying in childbirth because of racial bias. Moms are being separated from their children against their will. And women who are not yet ready to become mothers are forced to carry pregnancies to term. If you want to be a part of the Momversations Project, we hope you'll consider backing our Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign. Every dollar raised there goes to paying parent artists for their work on this project. And we've got some pretty great perks available at every funding level. Just type bit.ly slash f-u-n-d moms. That's bit.ly slash fund moms. Or head to womenstheaterfestival.com slash momversations. Or simply grab the link in the show notes. When we bring this dialogue to center stage, we have the opportunity to change lives. To save lives. And now let's hear from April Castillo, MD, on her remarkable work in breastfeeding as preventative medicine. I really, really, really want to talk to you about your work with breastfeeding. I'm so interested in all of that. So tell me about your study with preventative medicine and breastfeeding. Tell me what's going on, all the things. I got interested actually because when I first had Avery, we had a lot of breastfeeding challenges and I found it strange how hard it was to get help hmm. and just like getting a lactation consultant visit, you had to pay like $200 out of pocket and then you might get reimbursed by your insurance. Hmm. And, you know, we were lucky enough to to have the means, but like just barely, I was just thinking, you know, I went to Princeton and I am a doctor and I can barely afford this like most moms in this country can't do that. No wonder people give up. Yeah. You know, no wonder people are not successful with this often. You know, we just don't have the support we need. It's not like moms don't want to breastfeed or, or like, well, I know that this is better for my kid, but I just don't feel like it. It's that we're not given the support we need. We're sent back to work at six weeks, sometimes two weeks if people are, you know, shift work or, you know, low income or off the books there's just no, there's no support there. There's, there's no knowledge there. Doctors aren't taught about breastfeeding in medical school. They get one day maybe. And, you know, we're set up to fail in this country with breastfeeding. And so um, I, I just really wanted to, to change the system. Let's talk about that for just a moment, because you are absolutely right. I feel like that is the experience of many, many moms in this country, including my own. You know, when I first had my child, I was like, I don't know about this breastfeeding thing. I mean, I guess I'll try it and we'll see what happens, you know, because you hear it's good. But there's no real education around it. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was getting myself into and how really difficult it actually is to maintain that especially with going back to work and everything and and you're right the the knowledge is not there people are not taught even when you're in it you know we had access to some lactation consultants but unfortunately i would say those visits were less than helpful they actually created more stress than they were helpful and doctors, as you said, they're not trained in it. And they end up saying things that are 
again, even worse than helpful, <laughs> like the opposite of that. I remember one time I took my kid to the pediatrician. He was like seven months old. Now, luckily, this is my second kid. So I was already, you know, breastfeeding pro at this point. <laughs> and he was n- not wanting to eat from one side suddenly for whatever reason. And I told that to the doctor and he was like, oh, well, he's probably weaning himself. And I guffawed. I loudly guffawed because I couldn't help it. I was like, ah! <laughs> I was like, weaning to what? This child has never, ever, ever had anything else in his entire life. And he's like, this chunky monkey loves the boob. Like how in the world? What in the world? But had he said that to a new mom? That would have sent someone into just a spiral of anxiety and down a path of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? What do I need to do now? And so unnecessarily so. And that's what happened with my first baby. And it really is true. There's just not the knowledge around it. You know, even technicians, when you go get an x-ray, I got a mammogram and, and they're like, oh, well, you shouldn't breastfeed for 24 hours. And I'm like, no, that's not accurate. <laughs> And not even that. You're lucky that they they didn't even tell you you couldn't get a mammogram. Some tell you you can't get a mammogram, which is not the American College of Radiology and the American Cancer Society and ACOG all say you should still be getting your mammogram. You just have to empty first. And still doctors won't prescribe it for mm-hmm. you. Radiology places will turn you away because nobody reads the new guidelines. It's not that hard to keep educating yourself. It drives me insane. I'm sorry I get that ranty voice, but like... <laughs> No, I feel it. I feel it. You go. <laughs> I'm actually co-authoring a, a new like app and website called Trash the Pump and Dump. And it's basically like a, a lookup site for all the reasons women are told to pump and dump that they don't actually need to so that they can go look up the proper information because it's just... <sighs> so these are just some of the many, many reasons that um, I felt like this this needed to be, you know largely overhauled. And there's so many women doing this work. It's just needs to be cohesive and it, it, there's so much work to be done. Yes. Researchers won't even test on women that are pregnant or breastfeeding. And so we have such a lack of knowledge around medicine and what that means if you have other issues that you need medical intervention and there's just no studies on it. Right. So this was, I started my residency right at the start of COVID, right? And for me, one of the great things about that was that most of my residency, because it's more academic, ended up being uh, distance and virtual, which I love because my daughter was 10 weeks Mm. when I started my residency. And I ended up getting to do most of it with her like on my lap or wrapped on me. Um, I love that. Which was fantastic. So I'm, I'm in the MPH classes and I'm really learning like how to run a study, how to do all this. And then the emergency use authorizations for vaccines came out. And I learned that pregnant and breastfeeding women were both excluded from trials. Mm -hmm. And when the emergency use authorization was granted, the CDC immediately set up a registry for pregnant women so that they could track them, track birth outcomes, track any effects it may have had on their future children. But no registry was set up for lactating women. Mm -hmm. They were just like, oh, you should be fine. And I just, my head exploded on a level that was just, (laughs) because like there's all this data that was just like ripe and there because women were going to get vaccinated. Like there were plenty of women that were just like, I'll take that risk, you know? Yeah. But everyone was just like, oh, we don't need to collect any information. And it was just data just going by the wayside. So like the unreasonable person I am, I uh, immediately, as I finished my first semester of the MPH, stayed up for two weeks straight and wrote an IRB protocol and submitted it and got approval and started my own study. Go you! <laughs> yes! <laughs> and so here at Stony Brook, I ran a study on the COVID vaccine safety and uh, adverse effects in breastfeeding uh, persons and their breastfed children. I did it in uh, breastfeeding physicians. So I figured that, first of all, physicians were first line to get the vaccines first so we could get the earliest information. Second of all, it was people making their own decision. And I felt like 
physicians were getting the most information to be the best informed to make that choice for them and their children, especially because I was doing everything online as far as like consenting people to be in this trial. I just felt like that was ethically the best that I could do. So I started this through an organization that I'm in called Dr. Milk, which is Dr. Mothers Interested in Lactation Knowledge. It's a breastfeeding uh, support and information group for physician moms. It just really took off and a lot more moms than I expected signed up. And it's for moms who got mRNA COVID vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. And uh, most of my controls were moms who delayed returning to work. So they didn't get vaccinated because they were staying home um, initially. So they all ended up crossing over into, you know, vaccine arms eventually. <laughs> yeah. So I did this, this big study and I followed breastfeeding dyads for a year to see if they had any side effects like right after the shots, any long-term side effects, um, if moms had any side effects like change in supply, you know, breast pain, mastitis, anything like that. And I had to really cast a wide net because I had no idea what side effects could be, right? We had not, hadn't, hadn't had anything like this. So it's been really fun, really interesting, you know, still ongoing. I finished my one-year surveys because it was uh, January to March information. So I just finished my one-year surveys and I'm just doing all the data analysis on the one-years now. And most of my uh, one-year analysis has been on a lot of people have continued breastfeeding relationships a little bit longer than they had initially planned to try to continue giving their kids some immunity um, because, you know, the little kids still can't get vaccinated and how else are we going to protect them, right? Mm -hmm. And so even though we don't know how much protection it gives them, we feel like it's better than nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So I did an assessment of exposures and number of times a day being breastfed to see if there's any certain threshold that seems to provide immunity. And I'm actually finding that it appears breastfeeding at least two times per day confers a statistically significant amount of protection. Woohoo! That sounds great. That's very exciting. I am one of those mothers who extended breastfeeding with my son. My daughter breastfed for two years and four months. We were pretty good after that. <laughs> I was done. Um, I also got pregnant with my son at that time. And then my son, who he was coming around that same age right when the pandemic hit. And so I had those same feelings like, well, this is the way I can protect him. So I'm going to continue. And now here he is going to turn five this summer. And I'm like, are we done yet? Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did a great thing. And has he gotten COVID? He did. And it was so mild. He got it way less than his older sister. And yeah, we we managed to get right through it. And I, I do accredit at least some of that, because the rest of us are vaccinated. He's just not old enough yet, you know? So yeah. I do credit, at least, you know, in my own mind, but it's nice to hear you say that because it validates <laughs> what I was thinking, that it it's, it's helping. So that's wonderful. April, I was just wondering, you said it was statistically significant, and I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more on what that means. Yeah. So that basically means that it's not likely due to chance, So even if you have a large number of people, sometimes something could show up just by chance. You're looking at enough things that it could have just happened randomly that we saw more people get sick in one group than the other. But when you do certain statistical analyses, it basically is to determine how likely is this to be due to chance or how likely is this to actually be due to the effect that you're studying. And in terms of the statistical significance that you noticed for this particular thing, like what was the the size of it? We call something statistically significant when it's at least less than 5% likely to be due to random chance. I don't remember what my p-value was here, but I believe it was less than 1% likely to be due to chance. I would have to go back and, and look. So I did it based on looking at whether they had symptoms and whether they tested positive. So I have a few different p-values based on which ones that I looked at. That's why I don't know all of them off the top of my head. But I know at least one of them was less than 0.1% to be due to chance. So definitely don't believe that was random. (laughs) And then one of them was like less than 2%. So That's awesome. So you're finding really good results for all of this. Yeah, great results. Almost no side effects were statistically significant in, in babies. 
um, in the breastfed children, the only ones that were statistically significant really were after the second dose of Pfizer shots, babies had a slightly higher risk of getting fever that was low, self-limited, didn't need any medical attention. Um, and that was much more likely to happen in babies whose moms got a fever after the second dose of Pfizer shot. Interesting. But doesn't that kind of feel like that reason to believe those antibodies are being passed on and working, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Didn't you also find something with regards to supply with one of the arms? So actually, there were women who had supply increase after first dose, but it ended up not being statistically significant. And women who had supply decrease after second dose, but also ended up not being statistically significant. What was significant was with the supply increase, a lot of people having breast pain and tenderness and feeling like clogged ducts but no mastitis. Not The mastitis wasn't statistically significant. So the recommendation we actually had come out of that was that if you're breastfeeding and you're going to get your shot or your booster, you may want to consider getting the, the shot in the lower extremity, like the, the buttock or thigh, instead of the arm, because we believe that's all coming out of, you know how people are getting enlarged lymph nodes in their armpits after the, mm. the shot? That may be what's leading to the engorgement and clogs. Sorry, I'm like showing you my armpit. <laughs> you know where your armpit is. I don't I don't need to do that. So. I find all of this fascinating. <laughs> I just think breast milk in general is fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, do you want to tell us a little bit about the magic of breast milk? I, I love talking about the magic of breast milk. <laughs> so one of my favorite, my all-time like favorite numbers to quote to people on why I'm like so excited about this is the World Health Organization did a an economic breakdown and they found that every dollar invested in a breastfeeding mother yields a $35 net economic return. Wow. If that's not a reason to fund this kind of research, like yeah. I don't know what else you need. Like you're not going to find a better investment in anything in the world, but especially in public health, right? Like, yeah. like really all you need in public health is like sanitizing. We need clean running water, <laughs> mm -hmm. somewhere to, to get rid of human waste, you know, clean food and breastfeeding. <laughs> like, and so it's just, to me, that's, that's just huge. It decreases risk of, you know, gastrointestinal illness for babies. From premature babies, it decreases the risk of necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a problem for premature babies that often leads to death, if not month-long months long hospitalization. Uh, so a huge new study came out, the United States decreasing risk of uh, infant death. Because a lot of people say, oh, you know, that's that's super important in you know, developing countries, but like not in wealthy countries. Actually, studies show in the United States, like it decreased significantly risk of infant death within the first year. And and that's any breastfeeding. That's not like exclusive breastfeeding or, you know, which we just didn't have enough data to run the same study, but any breastfeeding. So even just getting a little bit of colostrum in the hospital, it's reduced the risk of infant death or the first year significantly. Wow reduces lifelong risk of diabetes, of obesity, especially mitigates that risk of exposure. So people whose moms have like gestational diabetes or have diabetes while they're pregnant, they're at much higher risk for the rest of their life of diabetes. So that like intrauterine environment, you know, mm -hmm. gives you high risk. Breastfeeding completely mitigates that. Wow. I did not know that. That's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that alone is huge, but you know, we talk so much about all the benefits it has for babies, and, and that's great. I obviously want wanted the benefits for my kids, right? Like, that's why I did it. But we ignore a lot of times the benefits it has for moms. So it also decreases mom's lifelong risk of hypertension, of high blood pressure. It decreases mom's blood sugars. It re-regulates those. So if mom is diabetic, it can help bring down her blood sugars. Hmm. It decreases mom's lifelong risk of certain cancers, like breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And it decreases the risk of postpartum depression um, and perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. So overall, I just think it's hugely important. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just hugely ignored because, like I said, we don't learn much about it in most med schools. And 
the doctors who do know a lot about it are because we've chosen to, you know, take the time to do all these extra courses and webinars and conferences and everything to learn about it. So there are plenty of physicians, especially, like I said, in these groups that, that have taken the time to really educate themselves well on it. But unfortunately, we're hard to find. And, and you know, there isn't even official board certification yet, although they're working on it and it should be out by next year. So you may have an easier time finding a breastfeeding medicine doc starting next year. Oh, that's good to know. But you're right. I mean, you know, and I feel like society has these views on breastfeeding. Like, generally speaking, most people be like, yes, you should breastfeed, but also do that in private because that's gross because breasts are sexual and we don't want to see or hear anything about it. So it's like, do it. You have to do it, but we're not going to help you. We're not going to inform you. We're not going to support you, right? Did you get any of that kind of pushback from anybody as you were doing your study or working on any of these? So surprisingly, no. Everyone here at Stony Brook has been fantastic about it. And I think that I like prepared to be more adversarial than it turned out to be. So like, I'm always prepared to like defend this to the death. And then everyone here is like, oh, that's amazing. And I'm like, oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So everything here has gone so smoothly. And I'm so used to the opposite that I, I get really thrown off. Like, oh, they're letting me just do whatever I want. This is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. You talked a little bit about um, your challenges with breastfeeding. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that journey? Okay, so. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, this is a big story. It starts with oof. (laughs) (laughs) With him, you know, he had a pretty bad tongue tie. Mm. Wasn't transferring milk well. And I ended up doing like the triple feeds where I was nursing and then I was pumping and then I was giving him bottles and then he was refusing the breast because he liked the bottles and and all that. And we ended up having the tongue tie cut and, you know, eventually transitioned back to breast. And that was challenging. But by like three months, not even everything was smooth and, you know, he loved his boobie and (laughs) (laughs) and things went great. But, you know, those first few months were so difficult, and that's what made me get really interested in this and just the lack of help I was able to find. And I had a great lactation consultant, but like I said, I had to pay out of pocket and never got reimbursed the way they said I would, and and that's annoying. And just even in the hospital, the way they were trying to push formula right away. So he was jaundiced in the hospital, and my milk supply came in right away. And I had the haka in the hospital, and I was having like an ounce come out at a time already. And so they wanted me to supplement. And I'm like, I have this like transitional milk already right here. And they were like trying to get me to use formula. And I was like, why? Like I have milk right here that's better for him. And the thing is that my husband didn't know anything about it. So he's like, well, they said we have to use formula. So he's trying to push me to use formula. And, you know, he thinks that it's the better thing because that's what they said. Or like, he was like, you seem exhausted. You should just send him to the nursery for a little while. And I was like, no, because if, like, if he starts crying, they're just going to put formula in his mouth. And he was like, they wouldn't do that if they know he's breastfed. And I was like, you've clearly never worked in a hospital. And <laughs> and so the nurse came in and he, my husband's acting like I'm crazy, right? So he, he asked the nurse to like kind of be like, I'll show you, you know. And he asked the nurse, like, if he was in the nursery and he started crying, they wouldn't give him formula or anything, right? And the nurse was like, I mean, it could happen. And my husband just has this shocked look on his face as though, you know, he's like scandalized. <laughs> well, that's the way it works, <laughs> you know? So I, I kept him with me because I, I didn't want that for him. It was it was just really frustrating because it just felt like I had to have my eyes physically on him 24-7 or someone was going to be giving him formula. And since I didn't want that for him, the only way to like have my wishes honored was for me to physically be awake and watching his mouth 24-7, which makes you feel crazy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's awful that that's what you experienced, having to be that much of an advocate that you felt like you couldn't even sleep. That's ridiculous that that's what had to happen. And unfortunate. I'm I'm sorry that happened to you. That's not right. You know, and they shouldn't. They really shouldn't. If they, you know, bring your baby to the nursery and they're breastfed and they cry and want to eat, they need to bring the baby back. 
right? Right. Yeah. This doesn't seem that difficult, but we got through it and he didn't get formula. So yeah. But you know, I think what some people don't understand is what happens to mom if you don't breastfeed on the schedule that if you're a breastfeeding person, if you don't breastfeed when the baby would normally eat. Right. Then your milk's not going to come in the same way. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have low supply and then you're going to have to give more formula. And then you're going to, it's just a cycle that keeps ending up where you end up eventually with no milk because you were supplementing without pumping or feeding. Yeah. I, I just wasn't prepared for that to happen. And so I didn't let it happen, but I did months of research beforehand because that's the type of crazy person I am. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I knew that this is what I wanted for my child because I'm obese. My husband's obese. My husband's family is like the family history of diabetes. Mm. And I didn't want that for my children. And so the best way I knew to mitigate it right away was to exclusively breastfeed. Mm-hmm. You know, because they already have these risk factors and I wanted to do the best I could to try to stop them from the start. Yeah. Good for you for doing all that research. I did not do that. I was just kind of like, I don't know, just see what happens. I guess I had no idea what all went into it. And the fact that, you know, not only that with supply issues, but you can end up engorged and end up with mastesis and clogged ducts and all of those really painful, awful things that you know, need medical intervention sometimes, you know, can really put you down a bad, bad path medically, you know, for your health. So it it really is a health issue, you know, when it comes to being able to pump when you need to pump and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of it during pregnancy, like doing all the research on that for me was also my way of handling the anxiety mm-hmm. because I mentioned like I had the stillbirth before that. And So for me, it was already working on like, what can I do to keep this baby healthy? What can I do to make sure that everything is okay? So spending all night researching, you know, all the time was, was my way of handling that. Yeah. I am not suggesting that for everyone. (laughs) I'm just saying like, that was just my way of uh, handling the anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I I just, I think one of the things that's like most shocking to me about your journey, so like several aspects of your journey as a mom, April, is like, you're a Princeton educated physician and a literal expert in these subjects. And like, you still have gotten pushback in several key scenarios from your healthcare team. And that I think is like just such a, it's such an important thing to acknowledge because it's sort of like, what what hope is there for the rest of us? <laughs> That's what made me want to fix things. And I didn't even mention with the, with the difficult breastfeeding path. So then I decide to go into breastfeeding medicine, right? And I go work on changing my whole career and I apply to these preventive medicine residencies because I think that's the best route to go. I get pregnant before I started applying and I have Tali right before I start. This little girl comes out and she seems to have a great latch. She's not transferring anything. She's not getting any milk Mm. and we can't figure out what's wrong. And her suck pattern is really weird. And it turns out she has like this major oromotor dysfunction, which means she can't like organize her tongue and her suck. Mm. And she has like all these muscle problems And, you know, later in life, it turned out she had a lot more muscle disorders and she ended up with like muscle, uh, like motor delays, like generalized. But the first few weeks of life, we can't figure out what's going on. She can't latch to me. She can't latch to a bottle. We can't feed her at all. Um, I'm like spoon and syringe feeding her my breast milk. And she would latch to me like for comfort. She just wasn't getting any milk. She wanted to be latched all the time. Mm. And it was just like... I was either latched to her or pumping and then giving her milk and then put her right back on the boob to be comfortable again. Mm. So it was just incredibly stressful, but we had no idea what's going on. Meanwhile, everything was virtual because she was born April 11th, 2020, and no one would see you in person for anything, right? And so every lactation consultant was doing virtual visits and was like, look at her latch. It's fantastic. It's fine. There's no problem. (sighs) 
And like, luckily our pediatrician would bring her right in and do weights and say, she's not gaining anything. We have to fix this. So she wanted us to fortify my breast milk. And it was just like, you know, the one thing after another. And of course I felt ridiculous because here I am changing my whole life to become a breastfeeding medicine doctor and I can't even breastfeed my daughter. Mm. Right. And, and it was just, just one thing after another, we're bringing her all the way out to Southampton, which is like a 45 minute drive twice a week for like OMT, like the manipulation therapy by a DO. And we had her tongue tie clipped, which honestly made like her tongue more mobile, but like the oromotor dysfunction worse. And she couldn't take a bottle till she was seven months. Wow. I mean, it was, it was just really. That's a long road. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I should mention now she's the best eater in the world. (laughs) (laughs) She loves to eat and she will just sit there with produce all day. (laughs) But yeah, it was a very long road. So my breastfeeding journeys, neither were easy, but both taught me a lot. Well, April, we have had such a great conversation. We've talked about so many things. But before we go, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to share with us? Just getting like services for kids with special needs during Mm -hmm. this pandemic, I had wanted to mention because that was like impossible. But I think that's a huge thing that needs to be brought attention to during the conversations is like the worsening of disparities and inequity and how that's affecting low-income moms because it really is. With WIC, I I do a lot of my breastfeeding work with WIC and um, WIC hasn't been seeing people in person for like two years now. So a lot of their breastfeeding support has kind of decreased because they're, you know, there's only so much breastfeeding support you can do virtually, right? So like their breastfeeding peer counselors essentially mostly just text people now. Mm. So I actually started a virtual breastfeeding support group in English and Spanish for the Stony Brook WIC clients. And we're doing that like every week, but it's just so hard, like, because, you know, WIC and WIC covers formula, but they have better food packages if you're breastfeeding and they offer breastfeeding support. They have breastfeeding educators, lactation consultants, and peer counselors, But when you're not seeing people in person and you're struggling and you end up giving up and giving formula, then they cover it. So, which they need to, obviously, you know, we don't want babies to starve and there needs to be an alternative, but it's just, these are just going to keep widening disparities over time. And, and uh, it's just something that we really need to figure out how to address. Is there outreach happening with these? Is there a way to reach out to these mothers that have this need that maybe don't know where to look? The problem is that there's not one concerted large program, right? There's a whole bunch of small ones. The New York Mm -hmm. State Department of Health website has a lot of little things on it. Like I said, for here, for Stony Brook WIC here in New York, on Long Island, we, um, we started this program, like the virtual breastfeeding support. And I know that Um, In Nassau County on Long Island, uh, they also started a virtual support group. And lots of the like baby cafes, the lactation consultant-led support groups have gone virtual now too, and anyone can sign into those free. But I have often found, first of all, they're all in English. They don't have any um, translators. So for the Spanish-speaking mamas, they're not Mm. helpful. But second of all, they tend to be much more upper middle class white women. And so a lot of low income and women of color don't feel comfortable on them. Um, So I created that space more as just a safer space for women that may feel, may have other issues that are breastfeeding related, but also, you know, particular to like low income, you know, people that are having to go back to work at two weeks because they work off the books and, you know, in a shift mm-hmm. job, shift work and don't get pump breaks and things like that. So, um, but it definitely helps to remember that almost half of infants born in the United States are, are WIC eligible. So if, especially right now with the economics of COVID, if you are struggling in any way, you might want to reach out to your local WIC office and just see if you're eligible or your baby's eligible. And you are automatically eligible if you are you or your baby are on Medicaid or SNAP or TANF. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Momversations Project. If you'd like to know more from our experts, you can reach Kate DeMarco Ruck at her website, theparentingstudio.com, and April Castillo on Instagram at Cabbage Patch Docs. Thank you for being a part of the Momversation. Thanks for being a part of the Momversation. The Momversations Project is National Women's Theater Festival's first company-created multi-format work generated by, with, and for mothers. For more information or to get involved with the Momversations Project and the National Women's Theater Festival, head to www.womenstheaterfestival.com. The goals of the Momversations Project include centering the stories and tough conversations surrounding motherhood today, deepening community connections among mothers, creating emotional connections to and motivating civic actions surrounding reproductive justice and health issues, and improving public health outcomes for women and all birthing persons. The Momversations Project is helmed by NWTF Executive Artistic Director Johanna Maynard Edwards, that's me, in collaboration with Molly Clausen, Ilionette Bernabal, Sarah Johnson, and Emily Boyd Dayhab, along with producers Kristen Ryan and Hannah Williams. We are proud to provide paid opportunities for mother artists to create work while honoring their family and other commitments.